What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> ECW one of the way champion. The ECW. When you want to load down a professional wrestling, come right here to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You'll get all the load down. <laughs> Well, guys, it's great to be on the, on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. It just You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. but Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hear me. Fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. The chair. Yeah, look at this now. Oh, the ref's got the chair. Yeah. Referee taking yeah. oh, a double sledge. Referee unarming the boy and face first with Benjamin. A strong illegal man. Wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, and Damari beats the Intercontinental Champion. No, Damari didn't beat anybody. Here are you leaders. That man. Damari and Muhammad Hassan. The referee was trying. The referee man was trying to unarm Damari. For the second time, another unfair advantage created by Mohammed Hassan. I can't believe the outcome of this. Well, check it out one more time and seeing is believing. Starts here, the referee gets the chair away from Jabari. Sheldon Bump got a T-bone suplex. But instead, that's what he got by the illegal man. And then look at that. Covered by Davari after Muhammad Hassan had done the damage. And I'll tell you what a heartbreaking loss or something. Two man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by our new sponsor, the Mountain Man Beard Company. Get on over to the Mountain Man Beard Company website and learn all about their products. And stay tuned a little bit later on in the show to hear all about those products from the man with the best beard on this program, my co-host. And his name is Primetime John Paz. And of course, if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And Mr. Jonathan Paz and myself are joined by two guys that are opening up a school in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that is bound to make some waves in the professional wrestling industry as they embark on the Academy, the school of professional wrestling that is owned and operated by former WWE 
and TNA Impact Wrestling Superstars, Mr. Ken Anderson and Sean Devari. And we can talk about performance centers. We can talk about television products that train professional wrestlers. But when you can have two guys with the background and the relationship of Mr. Anderson and Sean Devari, you're going to learn pretty quickly that the destination for training in 2016 into 2017 is going to be the academy. It's going to be the school of professional wrestling up there in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where in November with the first class, it's going to cause quite a clamor. It's going to really send some shockwaves throughout the training aspect of professional wrestling. And John, as I welcome you in here, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what we have to expect from this interview. Uh, we like to call this an epic where it, it goes in a duration pass around that hour 30 minute Mark, and once it gets into epic territory, you know it's an all-encompassing and it's an all-inclusive interview covering the careers of both men as well as their training philosophies and what we have to look forward to with this academy opening up. But John, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what we have to look forward to and what we can expect with Sean Devari and Mr. Anderson getting this academy, the School of Professional Wrestling, open and off the ground. Yes, Chad, back here again for another fantastic episode at the two-man power trip of wrestling. And you said it, and you said it quite well. This was another interview that went into the epic territory for the show, and that is these longer interviews where we just get on a complete roll, where the chemistry is just going great, where everything is just going right, and we almost end up doing about a two-hour-long interview. It was just amazing. We had an absolute blast. I know those guys had a blast. It was so much fun. Of course, I'm talking about Ken Anderson and Sean Devari from the Academy, the School of Professional Wrestling up there in Minnesota. And this was one that kind of took me by surprise because sometimes when you have two guys interviewing two guys, sometimes it's almost a cluster where it becomes too many people doing the interview and too much going on. But this was just was perfect chemistry. We just nailed it. And we were able to have so much fun with these guys. Mr. Anderson, you know, is such a great personality. You know, he's such a great talker. And that was fun. And Devari, you didn't know, you know, because usually he played that villainous heel. Um, sometimes his the mic work would be just basically to get heat, not really to, you know, entice the fans. So it was very, very awesome to get them on. And I think Devari was just a, an amazing interview. And it was such great insight from him talking about his whole entire career. I, I love talking about his time in the WWE, of course. And with Ken Anderson, he had to talk about his time within the WWE. But it's great to go over their career highlights, which was lo lots and lots of fun. But the thing that we'd start off talking about is obviously the academy the school of pro wrestling up there in minnesota and kind of what makes them different and the thing that we think and that everyone else should kind of uh, jump on our bandwagon as well is when you get two former great professional wrestlers well not former current great professional wrestlers that were formerly in wb or formerly in tna i mean these guys are on tv for years so where do you want to go to learn to become a tv star if you will within the wrestling business or if you want to learn how to be on tv and how to be a wrestler at the same time these guys are the perfect mix i mean if you want to be a star you want to make it in this business you don't want to work for you know 25 bucks a night at an indie show i would go train with ken anderson and sean devari 100 percent. check out the, the academy the school of professional wrestling you will love it and hey if you're a female molly holly the legendary molly holly is a trainer there as well but chad you know 
obviously we get into the school obviously we talk about the career highlights one thing that took me for a loop and i know it took you for a loop was their friendship i had no idea when i originally saw that we we're going to do the interview with them and we're going to talk about the school and stuff i was like what a weird pairing how, how do you get these two together and lo and behold they have been friends for a very very long time they went up and down the roads together it's crazy they even mentioned it to us that nobody knew that they've been friends for such a long time which we found funny because we're like well we didn't know a lot of people didn't know apparently so i mean that's a great joke that we tell and you know quite frankly we had no idea but they put themselves in the same category as a hall and nash a triple h and a Shawn michaels or a punk and cabana where they've been wrestling basically everywhere together but people didn't really put it two and two together because they weren't on tv together or you know they didn't feud or, or whatever so that is interesting i love that little twist in the interview because that just makes their chemistry together unreal they're just awesome playing off of each other and we just had a blast doing this interview and you know Chad, like i said this is definitely going down in the epic territory for our show there is absolutely no denying that it's an epic and just based off of the duration of the interview, when we talk about the epic category, it is probably one of the greatest epics I think we've ever put out. And I think the fans and the listeners are going to really enjoy it. And I definitely can tell you, you've heard other trainers, you've heard other schools advertised in the show. If you do your research and you really look into the academy, you look at the School of Professional Wrestling up there in St. Paul, Minnesota, I definitely think if you want to learn from the best, you want to learn from guys that have that TV experience, and not only just the TV experience, but recent TV experience, and they know what these companies are looking for, they know what they're going to teach you is going to be what the decision makers in the bigger companies are looking for and go out of your way to look up the Academy, the school of professional wrestling and get on their Twitter, get on their website, get all the information you're going to hear from them at the end of the interview and get your behinds on there. If you want to learn how to be a wrestler and on these shows that we've been going to lately, John, we've been getting a lot of requests for people to know how should I become a wrestler? Or they're asking the guy that we're with, how can I become a wrestler? Well, we're going to give you our tip and our, our recommendation is that you get in contact with Ken Anderson, you get in contact with Sean Davari, and you get your behinds up to St. Paul, Minnesota, and attend the academy, the school of professional wrestling. And John, with all that being said, we want to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by Mountain Man Beard. And we want to thank the Mountain Man Beard Company for coming on board and getting in on the two-man power trip of wrestling. And I think it's more than a perfect opportunity to welcome back the man with the best beard on this show, and that is Primetime Paz. Hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and tell him a little bit more about the Mountain Man Beard Company and then get it over to Sean Davari and Mr. Ken Anderson. Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is brought to you by our new sponsor, Mountain Man Beard Products, where they remind you, no beard is too tough to tame. Keep your beard looking clean, soft, and sexy while keeping you looking good. Head over to mountainmanbeard.org. You can buy some beard starter kits, some soaps, beard butter, and oils of many flavors, including Hunter's Choice and my favorite, good old apple pie. Also check out some combs, mustache, savers, some hats, and many more products. So head over to mountainmanbeard.org and while you're there, check out the Mountain Ninja. Mountain Man Beard. Real beard products for real men. 
And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Please subscribe to us on YouTube where you will find the latest and greatest clips from our show. Also, please subscribe on iTunes. While you're there, please check out the feed for prior legendary episodes with the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, Stan the Lariat Hansen, WWE's lead attorney Jerry McDivitt, the phenomenal AJ Styles, the lunatic fringe Dean Ambrose, the Demon Kane, and so, so, so many others. Also, please check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. While you're there, please check out the events page. See if the two-man power trip and one of our friends is coming to your town. So please check that out and check out the events page. Also, while you're surfing the net, check out wrestlinginc.com. That is wrestlinginc.com. They are the greatest wrestling news site in the world. So you got to check them out. Also, Check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, ProWrestlingTees.com. You can check out our page on there. You can check out Tito Santana, Kevin Thorne, Paul Orndorff, Buff Bagwell, and so many others. And for any of you Android users out there, please check us out on Player FM. And now, without any further ado, two former WWE TNA and OVW stars, they are the trainers and owners of the Academy School of Professional Wrestling in Minnesota. Please welcome Mr. Ken Anderson and Sean Davari. Please enjoy. Kennedy! but how did it all come about? So, Davari and I have been best friends for the last 16 years. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. We never did anything on TV. We never really alluded to it uh, on our on-screen presence. But we started out riding up and down the highways and really humping it in the Midwest and going to training seminars and trying to get dark matches and tryouts with WWE and uh, ECW and with TNA. And we didn't know anybody when we got into business. We didn't, we, we literally had to go out and network and make our own contacts and claw and fight and scratch our way to where we got. And, you know, 
Minneapolis used to be a huge hotbed for professional wrestling, some of the greatest names ever in the history of the business have come out of this place. And it sort of died down in the last 10 years or so. And there are no wrestling schools in the Twin Cities. There's 5.8 million people here. We thought it's time to do something. I think we bring a lot to the table. I think we're two guys that know what it takes, what WWE is looking for, what impacts or TNA is looking for. And, you know, we hope to give our students an opportunity that we never had. You know, it's kind of like a parent wanting to have the best for his kids. What did you decide to pull the trigger on actually putting it all together? This is something that we've been talking about for a long, long time. And, uh, I'm a guy that I feel like I have to have all my ducks in a row and everything neatly lined up, and we got to make sure that everything is in the perfect place before we pull the trigger. And like with my podcast, my co-host at the time said, no, man, let's just get it off the ground. Let's get running, and we can tweak it and add or subtract as we go along. And that sort of, Davari really said, dude, let's just do this. Yeah, and there's of course, you know, there's no uh there's no shortage of uh finding uh the right trainer out there. There's no shortage of uh you know, like a, there's no database right there to go say, Hey, listen, is this the best place to go? Everybody right now wants to get into WWE. Everybody is kinda of seeing what they just put on display with the Cruiserweight Classic that you don't necessarily need to be a certain type of wrestler anymore. But as you put together a school and you go you know what you want to look for, you know what uh, these companies want to look for when you go through the selection process and you see the people that come through the doors. Do you have anything that you're looking for specifically right out of the gate when you have a student coming to you and saying, "Hey, listen, I think this is something that I want to get into now." Well, I mean, one thing I've always saw is like, like successful people in any facet of entertainment before they even have that talent, learn it, or express it. Like you just can see that they're hey, this is the guy that walks into a room and everybody's head turned. And, like, me and Kevin, we have this conversation that when he was, like, a kid, not, you know, in school or high school or whatever, and I was a kid in high school, before we even thought about, you know, wrestlers or normal people, jobs, just, we were like that. Like, we were, people knew us, you know, not because we were great wrestlers or athletes or entertainers, but, like, we were walking to the classroom and within, like, a couple of days, it was like, oh, come turn with this kid in my class, Kenny, he's hilarious, or, oh, watch this kid, Sean, he always fucks with the teacher and it's really funny and, like, you you see that right away, and I've never met a successful wrestler who doesn't have a billion stories that sound identical to that. It's, it's yeah, I, I like don't, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I don't think that there, you know, there isn't necessarily a cookie cutter formula for who's going to be successful, who the right candidate is. Everybody has a different story. How many people thought that Mick Foley would ever amount to anything in the wrestling business. You know, he did it on his own. I mean, I, the same thing about me. Like, no one's had, like, very few I didn't have very much exposure before I got to WWE. I did some stuff with Ring of Honor right before I got signed. And, like, there used to be this thing called the Super... I mean, the Super Tournament still exists, but it's not that big a deal anymore. Um, but that was, like, the only national exposure I had for the most part. Nobody knew what I did. And, and when people somehow, like, now that I've kind of got a little bit of a attention on, on like a national or international level when people see like my old stuff they are blown away at, at, from who they saw when I started on TV to who was the guy that said hey I want to be a pro wrestler I don't think there's I mean and that, like, I love the guy 
But think of a guy like Spike Dudley and say, like, Spike Dudley is 10,000 times more of a wrestling superstar than this Sean Navarro kid. Like, that's how unlikely I was to ever make it. So I never I, I never put it past anyone that, hey, something could click and, and this guy could be someone someday. Or girl. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But I think with the two of you, just from, you know, from a fan's perspective and from a viewer's perspective, I think you two were thrust into great spots uh, after, you know, battling through developmental. Uh, I know uh, Mr. Anderson there, you know, going through developmental and getting to the main roster and Davari. I know the way you got onto TV, I mean, you guys were kind of thrust into some pretty big spots, uh, kind of out of the gate and out of the onset. But do people want to get into professional wrestling now simply to be on television and be a, quote, TV star rather than, you know, when we think about guys who were getting into the business, you know, 25, 30 years ago, even 40 years ago, it was their job. It was, uh, you know, they might knock tin, but they're going to wrestle, you know, here or there. You're like, what, what do you think it is? Is it a television-based product now that people see and they want to use it maybe as a springboard, or are they still having that love and that, you know, passion for professional wrestling? Um, I'll, I'll tell you my take on it. It's actually, I kind of disagree with you a little bit because there was a lot of people around that time when me and Kent, like, shortly when WCW shut down, they had, like, everybody. So guys like me and Kent really weren't getting that much opportunity because they're like, dude, we have everybody from WCW under contract, not on TV. We have everybody from ECW under contract, not on TV. And one by one of those guys started fizzling out or, you know, either trying and failing or making it and succeeding. Uh, then spots opened up, like, okay, we got these guys situated. We kept the guys we want. We got rid of the guys we don't want. And then they kind of started around, like, mid-2000s looking at the indies again, but not as much as one would think. They were really looking at – I remember one time, you know, I won't say which guy it was, but a dude in the office went to the NFL Combine to recruit talent. And I'm, like, thinking in my head, like, what is it, how fast a guy can run and how much he can bench press or how many reps he can bench press 225? How on earth can we know that guy's going to draw money? And they did that pretty much the whole time we were there, and it was a pretty big revolving door. Like, guys, it's kind of funny. I, I like the guy. His name is Brent Albright. But uh, I remember when he came up, you remember, they brought him up, like, a couple weeks. His name was Gunnar Scott, and he walked in. And Booker G was like, he ain't going to be here next WrestleMania. And he was gone like four weeks later, and that happened like all the time. And now guys, they do hang around for a while because I don't think they really are hiring guys and being like, hey, let's make him a wrestler. They started hiring wrestlers again, and they're hanging around. I think that you see those, what you alluded to earlier about people that just want to be famous, just want to be on TV, they, they're never successful. Uh, I shouldn't say never, but rarely are they successful. You get the... Uh, those people who are passionate about look everybody when they're a little kid looks at guys on tv and says like man that would be so cool to be famous and rich and be on tv and that's obviously a part of it but you know we wrestled because we loved wrestling we loved entertaining people and we were making 25 or 50 bucks a night sometimes i would drive we we would drive 15 hours from green bay to nashville tennessee wrestle a match in front of a couple hundred people, get paid $50 and turn back around and, and drive home. And people, you know, people used to think we were crazy, but we did it for the passion. I think that if you always, if you do things that you love and you try to be as good at those things as you possibly can, the money will eventually follow. Does that make sense? 
Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, outside of just, you know, the, the, the basics that you're, you know, you're going to go over in the ring and are you going to get into, you know, a lot of the other, you know, the, the bullshit and the other stuff that goes on in professional wrestling, whether it's, you know, having to deal with management or having to deal with, uh, you know, somebody else coming in after you. I mean, is it more of like a, an all inclusive, uh, you know, almost like, um, you know, like a, uh, almost like a college course in terms of professional wrestling. You learn the bumps, but you also learn the bruises. Is that something else you guys are looking to uh, teach these kids coming in? We plan on having a one-stop shop for everything that is, you know, how to be successful in the professional wrestling industry. We hope that our students learn from our successes. Our successes. We also hope that they learn from our failures. We're going to be totally honest and open with them when they have questions, when something pops up and Sean and I have an anecdote say, hey, that happened to us. Um, we, this is what happened. Here's how we handled it. And that was a good thing or we handled it that way and that's not how you know, things turned out this way and this is how we should have handled it. Um, just as, you know, we intend to cover all aspects of the business. And that is from basic fundamentals to ring psychology to the promo to character development. I mean, we plan on having, uh, you know, comp, uh, comedians come in and do one or two day seminars to give their take. Because, like I said, there's no cookie cutter formula. And, you know, I think about chain wrestling differently than Nicole Cabana thinks about chain wrestling, thinks different than Booker T thinks about chain wrestling or, you know, anybody for that matter. So that's the plan. Hmm. Now what about the female wrestlers, if you will, having Molly Holly, very, very experienced, obviously experienced in WWE, but experienced wrestler as well. What about having Molly Holly with you guys as far as a female trainer goes? So, me and Nora have been friends for, or Molly and Holly have been friends for like a really long time. And one thing that nobody really remembers or nobody knows is like, there was a couple girls at that time, like the girls today are amazing. And at that time, she was wrestling with more or less models. Like she, and she was the only one that could have good matches. Like when Trish Radish really didn't know anything, she turned out to be a really good wrestler. But when she didn't know anything, like it was Molly Holly's job to be like, hey, this model we just hired from Toronto doesn't know how to wrestle, but she needs eight minutes a night. And if you're wrestling someone that doesn't know how to wrestle for eight minutes live on TV and they're nervous and they're scared, like they're under their 10th match, like, and you can make them look like they know what they're doing, that person, I guarantee you, is going to be one of the best trainers and teachers you're ever going to have to work with. And, and that's, that's, like, that's Molly's like secret. No one knows how... No one knows that she was like this mechanic in a time and place when a female mechanic didn't exist. And eventually, when she left, you saw the quality of inexperienced girls' matches go down. Like you never saw a rotten, terrible, awful girls' match on TV. Because if a girl was capable of doing that, they would put her with Molly, and then they'd be like, oh, that was a pretty decent match. And then after she left, there was really talented girls, but they didn't have that skill of training, teaching, explaining, caring, that inexperienced person. So the fact that she's been doing that for years, and she's really good at it, she's probably the best teacher uh, you could have for male or female, just the women that come to our, our school are going to be super, super lucky because I don't think there are any experienced female trainers out there, let alone female wrestlers out there that are as good as she is. And I tell you, I, 
I think she's going to be a fantastic trainer. I know she's going to be a great trainer because she's she genuinely cares about people, and she cares about individuals. And we all know that she's a completely selfless person. And you know, we all know that everybody learns differently. People learn at different paces, and they, they use different techniques to learn. And I think she's one that can really break down the individual and say, like, well, this person needs need a shout at her. I don't think Molly Holly will ever shout at anybody, but no, you never know. But you know, you know what I'm saying? That she's going to be able to determine what each individual needs. Absolutely, definitely. Now, one of the you know hot button topics out there right now in wrestling, and I got to ask you both in it because obviously. Davari, you were the Sheik at one point, and obviously Mr. Anderson, two-time former TNA champion. What are both of your guys' thoughts on what's going on with TNA right now and all those rumors circulating that, you know, that they're for sale and, and that they might be going under? Um, it is what it is. We'll have to see what happens. And look, we, the thing is, is that there are so many different places for people to work right now outside of WWE outside of TNA. The UK right now, England, the, the UK has a, something like 34 wrestling promotions in a, in a place that, is the, that has the landmass of the state of Florida, 34 wrestling promotions. And a lot of them are very good wrestling promotions. You can go over there and you can literally work three days a week and, and just be a wrestler. And, you know, you've got... <clears throat> You have uh, you've got NXT. I mean, I know that falls under the um, umbrella, but you've got AAA in Mexico. You've got a couple different promotions in Mexico. You've got uh, New Japan. Puerto Rico's got like four or five major. Puerto Rico's got four or five major companies. Ring of Honor. Yeah. Ring of Honor, Lucia. So there's other places for people to work, and I'm not so worried about it. What's going to happen is going to happen, and I think. So people have been clamoring for it. I can't understand it. I never have been able to figure it out. Clamoring, almost, you know, anxiously anticipating the demise of TNA. And I can't. I could never figure out why do you want to only shop at Walmart? I want to be able to shop at Walmart and Target and Walgreens and CVS and Shopco and other places. Um, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. What do you guys think is going to happen? I don't know. It's it's really up in the air. The uh, the WWE seems to be swooping in to try I guess try to purchase the library, but it almost seems like Billy Corgan's got something going on where he thinks he may purchase it. It, it seems like just from what you know the rumors and, and he did an interview, it seems like he may have made a bid to buy it, and it seems like that's going to be the the angle, if you will. I think he probably bought it. I, my, my thing on it is WWE can do what they want to do. It's it's how much they're willing to pay for it. And I think if they're smart, they would just take a back seat, which I'm sure is what they're doing. And I'm sure I'm, I'm fairly confident that there wasn't some sort of crazy conspiracy theory what they did with WCW. Because they sat back and just waited to see what everybody else was willing to pump into it and thinking if we exceed that or beat that, what's our return on it? And at the end of the day, if it becomes out, so say, hypothetically speaking, say Billy Corgan says, I want to buy TNA for $1. WWE is going to wait, see what Billy's offer is. Billy offers $1, and they say, okay, we have to pay $2 for it. We spend $2 on this. Can we get $3 back out of it? If the answer is yes, they're going to do it. If the answer is no, they're not going to do it. Because they can make millions probably with their tape library. But 
they're not going to lose millions if they don't have it. So if, if, if Billy decides that he wants to buy it worth, hypothetically speaking, again, $500 billion, and WWE has to come in with $501 billion, so they can only make $400 billion with it, they're probably going to pass. At the end of the day, it's a business, and at the end of the day, they have bean counters and number crunchers that are going to tell Vince, hey, you could probably get this much back out of it. It's worth it to you. And that's what they did with WCW. I remember Bischoff told me one time, uh, we were drinking at a bar after like a Raw or something, and he said his team was going to buy WCW for like something crazy, like $200 million. And then at the end of the day, Vince sat back and said, yeah, go ahead, take it. It's not worth $200 million to us. And then when TNT said, by the way, we're canceling all WCW programming, and they didn't have Nitro, and that company's like, whoa, 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 this company's going to work shit without Nitro. And then Vince said, okay, I'll give you $2 million for it. And you got it. Smart, shrewd business moves, uh, for sure. I mean, it's really not smart. Like, I, I, I'll say, like, you know, insurance companies do it all the time. It was, it was the same thing with the AOL Time Warner merger. That's that's what an acquisition team does. They look at it and they say, this is what it costs. This is what it's worth. This is what we can make with it. If those things all line up, it's a smart move. I think, I, I mean, you're not always right. I'm sure nobody told Vince, like, hey, starting the XFL is a bad idea. They probably did their number crunching, and it came out there, hey, shit, we could spend this much money to start our own football league and get this much out of it. Let's do it. Yeah, but you, you do get egos involved. And, I mean, that does play a factor, especially in this business. So it's yeah. not strictly just numbers. Yeah. There is some ego involved. And we know all parties involved you know, might have a little bit of an ego. And that's just a fact. It's not, you know, a knocker. No, I think it's more TNA. I think it's more TNA proving that hey, we can hang in there, which I wish they do, and I hope they can. But there's, I think it's more of a, like TNA never had the upper hand on WCW, so Vince, I don't think ever was really hurt by them. But you know, I, I know WCW, and they literally almost put them out of business to the point where they said, hey, we can't have a Colgan bottle on every floor of Titan Towers. Like they was probably happy to come back in that fight. Hmm. True, and. Obviously, if TNA goes, all those guys lose their jobs, and you know I doubt WWE is going to pick up all those guys. They're going to pick up maybe a few contracts and really, you know, purchase the library. So it would be bad in essence for the business. So I'm, you know, I'm rooting for TNA to, to stick it out, and maybe a guy like Billy Corgan and get some investors together and purchase TNA. Now, speaking of you know TNA and everything else. What was your experience like, Devar? I know you only had um, not as long of a run as, as Mr. Anderson, but what was your experience like? In- I left TNA from the day I got there until about a uh, couple weeks before, I don't know, a couple months before I quit. Like, my, my thing there was I loved working for Jeff Jarrett, and then when he wasn't my boss anymore, it wasn't it wasn't like a bad experience, but it wasn't a, like a very um, – I didn't have a lot of financial gain out of it. I was a pretty well-paid under – Jeff's like regime because at TNA it was like the more you worked the more you you got paid and when Jeff was on there from pretty much the day I started he says I like your stick I can fit you in match one I can fit you in popcorn I can fit you in the main event like I could use you on everything somewhere and he did and then when he kind of got when you know he lost whatever position I don't know kind of creative or whatever he was doing but anyway when he got sent home uh, the next guy I mean it was Russo pretty much the next guy in charge he didn't see much in me which I understand like different people, like different characters, and I wasn't one of his favorite characters. So now I went from working. It's kind of funny. People would always tell you, like, oh, man, I'd love to go to TNA for the schedule. Like, shit, I was on the road, like, 200 days there. I was like, what kind of, what, this isn't much of a lighter schedule. Like, who has a life schedule here? And, <laughs> but then, then I did get a life schedule. I was home, like, you know, 
I was working probably 10 days a month. And I was like, you know, that was that hurt my pocket big time. And the thing that bugged me the most about it is I negotiated a pretty good deal that that was going to be very financially beneficial to me if I stayed on the road. If I didn't stay on the road, it was, you know, just the same deal everybody else had. So then when I wasn't on the road anymore, I was like, well, man, this sucks. I went from literally, like, you can knock a zero off the end of my paycheck every week. Mr. Anderson, you obviously you know, mentioned for two-time former TNA World Champion. You had a longer run there. I mean, I, I could go down the list and, and kind of go through some of the big feuds and the big moments in TNA, but what was your overall sense? Do you enjoy your time there or not so much? I really did. I enjoyed my time, you know, for the most part. I think in every job you have, no matter what, your dream job, you have things that you don't like about it. But, you know, especially when I first got there, I had a chip on my shoulder. I had something to prove. And, uh, you know, I felt like I did a pretty good job of doing that. Um, I took a really light, you know, light payday when I first got there just to prove myself. And within six months, they came and said, like, we want to sign you for a three-year deal, and this is what, you know, and, and my pay went up exponentially. And, um, you know, I, I had a lot of fun there. I had some frustrations. There were some creative things that, uh, you know, heel face, heel face, heel face, heel face. That happened. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I've always hated about, and one of the reasons that I always sort of, I was, I was more vocal about it when I was younger. But with, with Internet, you know, dude reports, if you will, um, is that a lot of the things that the critics of professional wrestling are bitching about are the things that we're bitching about too. You know, we're all saying the same exact stuff, but we're employees of the company, technically independent contractors. But you know what I mean? They, if, if they tell us to do something, if you go out there and do it, you've got a job. If not, they'll find somebody else to do it. So that's you know, there's always frustration. But overall, I enjoyed my time there. And the, the talent there, the, the locker room was such a fantastic atmosphere. No egos. Everybody got along. Even when there was a guy that came into the company who started to get a little bit of heat for behaving a certain way, when I was at WWE, that person would have been just buried. You know, they would have done it all behind his back. And we got together and took him aside and said, like, hey, man, here's how you're being perceived. Here's the way that, you know, you should think about rectifying this, changing your, your tune. And he did. And, you know, that's the way things were handled there. We had wrestler's court one time. When we had wrestler's court in WWE, and it was serious. I've seen grown men cry before. I've seen a woman just sobbing during wrestler's court. <laughs> At TNA, everybody's laughing. We just had a good time. It was, you know, ribbing on the square, like, hey, you fucked up. Here's what you did, and we all know that you fucked up, but, you know, we don't hate you for it. Like, everybody screws up, so get your shit together. <laughs> you have a good, funny wrestler court story? I do. Not that I can tell. Yeah. No, I do. <laughs> I'll tell you what, this was... This was and I'm supposed to be the guy that's on the shit end of this too, because I was the one that got called to court. And it was actually—I forget what happened. I was talking to Bubba Dudley about this the other day, because he was the judge, 
And I asked him, I said, Bubba, why was I in court? And he was like, oh, I, I can't remember either, but fuck, that was fun. And that was something that never happened in WWE. Wrestler's court was not fun, especially for the dude that was on trial. And that was the dude on trial. And he remember how much fun we had. We were all sitting there laughing. Bubba was the judge. So then right away I said, hey, Devon, if Bubba's the judge, like, this is your chance. Like, anything you ever wanted to say to him, the motherfucker, like, this is your chance. Will you represent me as my defense attorney? He said, absolutely. So I had the Dudleys fighting each other in court. As my, you know, and then everybody came in, and then like the, my favorite part is, you know, at, at usually wrestlers' court happens on like house shows and stuff or like live events. This is a TV day, so we literally put the whole crew on hold to like 4 p.m. Like cameraman are waiting around trying to block shots. This Russo was like sweating and pacing back and forth trying to do his promos and stuff. Even at one point, he came into where we were doing the wrestlers' court. Like guys, we got to get to work. And, and uh, Simon Diamond was the bailiff, and he threw him out of our locker room. And then, anyways. <laughs> I don't remember why we went, but then the thing is, they're like, okay, Davari, we found you guilty. We knew you were guilty the whole time. But uh, Devon, like, turned heel on me and, and actually aligned with Bubba, and, which I should have thought coming. And then uh, <laughs> my uh, sentence was I had to buy a case of beer, you know, like a 24-pack for, you know, the guys that were a part of the court thing. So I literally went down. I wrestled that night. It was my match was over. I showered, changed my clothes. I went to the liquor store. I bought about $400 worth of booze. And then I went over to Walmart. And I bought, like, three folding tables, a bunch of, like, like Budweiser neon lights and shit. And while, every, while the show was going on, everybody was, um, you know, in the ring, around the monitors, watching what was happening in the arena. I literally, we had, like, a sectioned-off back area of the locker room, and I built a bar back there. I hung up neon lights. I put, out, I, put, I put a shelf in. I put booze on the shelf. You know, I turned the folding tables into, like, actual counters and, like, loaded it up with beer. And then um, Bob Ryder was actually nice enough to print signs for me, like, uh, in the production office. And started taping them everywhere, like party after impact in the locker room. And, and like, guys that never hung out, like Sting and Booker T and Charmel, they came and partied with us, like, 2 a.m. at the impact zone. It was, it was fun. And then, like, I think we went home for Christmas, and the fucking retard janitors, like, threw it all away, and then we lost our bar. But they actually became a little <laughs> bit of a problem, because we were regularly drinking at impact, like, from, like, sun up to sunset for a while. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> 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 you know what's interesting though we, you know, we're talking about TNA and, and you know having the fun stuff there it's interesting because Mr. Anderson you mentioned it too the talent was off the charts you think about Samoa Joe, Bobby Roode Austin Aries just thinking about them right now they're all in NXT do you guys find that you know, strange that those guys are in TNA they're now huge stars for WWE but really in the NXT brand no, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you one thing that always drove me bananas, and I don't know where the uh, what's like the language on the show. I'm sorry if I'm cussing too much. Is it okay? Is it like a PG? Oh show yeah, or Any, anything goes. All right, like, it drove me fucking bananas. I'd always hear like pe- like people that were around him, like his friends and my like, colleagues. People would always be like, "Oh, AJ would never make it in the WWE," and I'm like, "What the fuck is in your head that makes you think this guy would not make it in the WWE?" I I was like pulling my hair out of my head, and I was like, what? This guy's fucking amazing. How on earth do you think this guy couldn't succeed in the WWE? Are you crazy? Like, oh, he'd never survive in New York. And I remember one time we talked, uh, it was like my first pay-per-view there. It was in Houston. I don't remember what it was. But I remember it was in Houston because I lived in Houston at the time, and I had a really nice BMW convertible at the time, and I drove to the arena. And, you know, everyone was in their rental car, so I was driving my car, and AJ kind of pulled me aside. like, dude, what kind of money do you guys actually make in WWE? Because, like, my deal's coming up soon. I'm like, dude, go. Like, go. You'll be a star. Fucking go. 
and and you know, I don't know who, but someone got in his ear and be like, no, you can't make it there. Like this is your spot. You should stay here. And he resigned, and 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 maybe he wouldn't have made it at that time. I don't know, but I fucking knew. And I, I, for most people whose opinions I trust, like Ken, Joe, Bobby, uh, you know, AJ, you all, EY, all those guys, like. There was no doubt in my mind they'd ever make it because I'd seen shitty, terrible, rotten, awful guys make it. And these guys are really fucking good, not to mention good people. Crazy. I, to think. I, you said I can't say it any better than that. Yeah, and it's crazy to think that they weren't really doing much with, you know, a guy like Joe in TNA. He was kind of just floundering there. Then he goes to WWE, you know, he's NXT champ. He's having great matches with Nakamura and Finn Balor and everyone else in between. It's just crazy. Sometimes TNA drops the ball, but it looks like WWE has been able to actually, maybe it's Triple H doing it, maybe not so much Vince anymore. I don't know, maybe you guys would know better. Is that kind of Triple H bringing these guys in? Or does Vince still play a big role in that? No. Mm, from what I gather, I don't think Vince has too much... Too, too much say, or he had the ultimate say if he wants to, but I think he sort of relinquished control over to Triple H and others. But I think uh, Triple H right now, from what I gather, is just, he's a team builder. He's uplifting. He uh, wants guys to be creative and really sort of giving them the ability to either succeed or fail on their own accord a little bit. You know, hey, I've got an idea, and they sort of run with it and let them run with it. I've never had to work with Hunter when I was in WWE. Like, he was always around, you know, and in there. He knew he could do kind of what he wanted or do what he wanted with other people. But, he, you know, my, we never had any direct interaction with him. So the closest thing I know to working with him is my little brother is now doing a lot of stuff with WWE in, in dark matches and, you know, at TV. And then, like, he went down to do matches for NXT and then he went for the week-long tryout of indie guys on the Cruiserweight thing. And Hunter, he said, was, like, involved in all that. And he was telling me how much hands-on he was with him. And it was kind of crazy. I remember going, like, when we were coming up in WWE, they would be like, okay, this guy, like you say me, for example, I'm booked as a jobber. They're like, we want you to do this, this, this. Don't do this. Do that. Um, do you have other gear? Well, I don't like those. Are you wearing kick pads? I want you in boots. Uh, wear black wrist tape on this wrist. White wrist tape on that wrist. And then, you know, this, this is management. This is office. Saying this to you. And then my brother told me he's going there, and then Hunter's like, oh, you know, what do you do? Oh, cool. Where have you done that? Did it work? What did you think of it? Would you like to change it? Would you like to keep it? Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Do your thing. We'll watch it. If it's good, we'll stick with it. If it's not good, we'll give you advice. If you don't like our advice, tell us to fuck off and do your thing. And, like, guys are doing that. And it's more or less what brought him to the dance. And and that was something I was kind of talking about earlier when I was talking about guys with such a huge turnover of dudes. Like, there are guys that were really impressive. That's why WWE hired them. And then they change everything about them. Like, I, I, I did a show with Nova this past weekend, and we talked about that with Paul Birchall. Like, Paul Birchall is fucking amazing as is, the way he was. He says, this guy's so fucking good. We're going to pay for his work visa, bring him to the United States, pay him a minimum of $60,000 a year because that's what you need to sponsor a work visa, because he's that good. And then they got him and said, hey, all those things are so cool about you. Never do that again. But be a pirate. Be a pirate. See if that works. Are you a pirate? Oh, you hate pirates? I don't care. You're a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I sort of experienced that myself, too. The, all the stuff that got me to the dance, that got me noticed, that got me recognized. I went out and I cut a promo the first night that I was on Velocity. And, you know, I had a decent match with Funaki. And 
came back to the curtain and they were like, your character's awesome, it's over the top, we love it. And then six months later, that over the top character, we don't want you to do that. We want you to be serious. We want you to stop being so goddamn funny. We want you to be, well, we want you to stop being entertaining. For the longest time, I had the hardest time. I, I literally would fight tooth and nail with Vince every time I came back. I wouldn't fight with him. It wasn't like I was, you know, lipping off to him or whatever. But, like, we would argue, and I would be just so frustrated because he kept trying to sort of reel me in and dial me down, and I had the hardest time doing that. But, you know, in, in the long run, I see what he was talking about. But at the time, I had a really, I had a really tough time with it. But the thing is, with Ken, for example, he does see what he's talking about. But as a talent in any facet of entertainment, you know if you don't feel it, it's not going to work. So maybe what they wanted out of Ken, and I've seen out of a million other guys, what they want out of them, maybe it could work. It really, really could be successful if the talent carrying that out believes in it. If they don't, 10 times out of 10, it doesn't work. That's true, yeah. If the, if the guy, you know, it's not into the character, you see that a lot, or you used to see that well, a lot. Whatever it be, it's, not it's, into it's, it, yeah. artistic, it has to be your artistic vision. If it's not your artistic vision or an artistic vision that you can subscribe to, it usually doesn't work. I mean, like, when, they, when you see, like, good, successful, like, A-list repeat successes like Leonardo DiCaprio, it's not that Leonardo DiCaprio could do a shit movie and play a shit character. If that script comes across his agent's desk and he sees it, he goes, I'm not doing that shit. Like, fuck no. And then somebody comes across and goes, I relate with that. I like that. I feel that. I'm going to do it. And he hits the home run every time. It's like artists. Like you were talking artists. Tell Salvador Dali to paint uh, a picture of some clocks. And when he starts doing what he did, no, that doesn't look like a clock. Clocks don't look like flapjacks hanging over a tree branch. Like, you know, uh, uh, clocks are this way. We want you to paint. Well, if you had painted clocks that way, that painting, would, would the persistence of time or whatever it's called, would not be as successful as it was. Devori, interesting, you know, point there. Do you think that's why Muhammad Hassan didn't really work in WWE? Was he not as into the character as he could have been almost? No, I don't think so, man. Like, if you watch what he did, that motherfucker hit a home run, like, every night, and he was green as shit. Like, nobody knows, like, really, that his first day on the job ever, like, first time he set foot in the ring was in WWE's developmental territory at OVW. And by the Hmm. time he got to Raw, I think he had less than, like, 150 matches. He'd never even done a TV match. I mean, like, that shitty OVW TV, but he's never done, like, a proper TV match in his life. And, Hmm. And... because of that, unfortunately, he never experienced that type of atmosphere and environment, and he didn't really, he had a shit ton of heat. Everybody hated him, but it was really a no fault of his own. I guarantee you, if I, I mean, I know this for a fact, when, when I work in other environments, I don't fit in well at all. They hate me because I'm super weird, and I don't know how to fit into a normal, like, white-collar office job culture, and it doesn't work, and Mark was the same way. Like, he couldn't, he'd never been in that environment before, so he it's kind of funny is that we're all fucked up and act like circus animals and he'd behave like a normal human being and the circus animals did not like the normal human being. He would do normal, rational things and people are like, what the fuck? You mean this guy has to wake up tomorrow at 4 a.m. to drive 200 miles to go to the airport to catch a flight? He doesn't want to drink till 3.30 in the morning? What's wrong with his asshole? I hate him. That's the type of thing that happens. <laughs> that shit would never happen to me. He, was, he would be a multi-multi-millionaire if he started tonight or, you know, on Monday on Raw today in 2016. He'd be a success, 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 success. See, that's the best part. 
I almost yep. Yeah, he you know, it's it's interesting. Some guys, you know, they get it or, or you know, they, they hit the stride at the right time or they're pushed at the right time. Do you think that, you know, sometimes they they're pushing green guys that aren't quite ready and it's almost better to have the independent guys, like a guy like AJ Styles who's wrestled for well, so long? When I say he I, I don't know I might be a little uh, biased in this part of it, but like he didn't do anything shit. Like everything like just if you just watched his content, if you just watched him on the WWE network, he didn't do anything bad ever. Mohammed. Everything is his promos were home runs, his matches were good, the people gave him heat as his job was as a heel. He could get you know, baby faces to like get people to go bananas, excited, happy for them in their comebacks. Like he did a really, really good job for as new and as green as he was. But unfortunately when the cameras stopped rolling, uh, he didn't know really how to behave. And like I said, it was really at no fault of his own. He's just never been in that environment. I've been around fucked up shit since I was 16 years old. So when I go in a world that's fucked up and crazy, like, I fit right in. You look at how many guys that the WWE has taken from, you know, just pulled them out of college or, you know, they try to just build a wrestler and make them on their own. How many of those are successful versus how many guys who cut their teeth on the independence and busted their asses, and we're all independent contractors. We own our own business. I am my own business. Sean is his own business. And you got guys that, you know, busted their butts. CM Punk, Daniel Bryan, Samoa Joe, AJ Styles, Austin Austin Aries, you know, success after success after success. A lot of those guys are just, Great, unbelievable talents, and sometimes they miss the ball. But I wanted to go back to a point with you, Mr. Anderson, and that was, you know, you're kind of saying the creative freedom and the creativeness, and sometimes WWE cuts you off. Did you want to become Mr. Kennedy, or did you want to be, stay Mr. Anderson and keep that, you know, that name and that gimmick? Well, I mean, first of all, so I wanted to stay my own name. Um, I was Mr. Anderson in OVW. Uh, the first two nights that I was on TV for WWE, I was Mr. Anderson. I got to TV, and Johnny Johnny Ace came up and said, "Hey, uh, they want you to change your name. Vince wants you to change your name." And so I put my head together with Paul Heyman, and we came up with Kennedy. But you know, I sitting I was sitting in a room. I had a meeting with Vince, Stephanie, Kevin Dunn, and Johnny Ace. We all had like little folding chairs and we were all facing inward in a little circle. And we were talking about it. And he said, what do you want your name to be? And I said, I really like Anderson. I really would like to stay my own name. And he said, look, I don't want you to be associated with, I don't want people thinking that you're a relative of the Anderson family, the famous Anderson wrestling family. Oh, holy gene. I want you to stand on your own. I don't want people to think that you got in because of nepotism. So, and, I had, and then also, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then also, he didn't know if I was going to shit the bed out there or if I was going to be a success. So that's another thing. If I am related to those guys, people think I am, and I'm the shitty Anderson, you know? So, and ultimately, I think it's, if I'm Ken Anderson or Mr. Anderson, I get to go be Mr. Anderson on the independence. If I'm Kennedy, I, I don't get to do that on the independence. And everybody ultimately gets fired, or most people do. But at the end of the day, so I said, like, I really would like to be Mr. Anderson, but 
it's just a name. You, you know, you can call me Mr. Dickhead if you if you really want to. As long as I just Mr. Gonna... Dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just a name. And then I, I it's funny because I get people coming up to me all the time and I'll say like, I liked you better when you was Mr. Kennedy. Like I, I haven't fucking changed a thing. I I still do the same thing. It's just they changed my name. <laughs> That is true. And where did Kennedy come from? Is it literally just because that was Vince's middle name? Is that where that kind of like spawned from? I mean, Paul, I will, she, uh, yeah, Paul said like, ah, oh, you got to pick something that is near and dear to his heart. So we were trying to come up with names. I guess he had a dog named Ruckus or Rumpus or something like that. He was like, what about Kenny Rumpus or Kenny Ruckus? Whatever. He said, <laughs> Kennedy. Kennedy is Vince's. And one of the things was I had, I was Kamikaze Ken on the Indies and I had this the backwards KK logo, and I wanted to keep that as sort of an homage to my indie days. And so I asked myself, like, something with a K, like Ken, something something with alliteration. And he, Kennedy, that's it, Kennedy. And when I said it to Vince, he got a big smile on his face. And it was kind of like, he almost like he knew where it had come from and who had been behind it. And he said, are you happy with it? And I said, I really like Anderson. And he goes, all right. And he looked at Kevin Dunn and he said, make sure he's got Kennedy up on the Titan shot for tonight when he was up. Another funny story Jericho told me one time that uh, him and Rhino were doing something on the show uh, like years ago. And they're in the middle of a program. It had a couple months. So, you know, no one cared. When I say no one, I mean the office, not the audience. No one in the office really cared about it. And then Jericho told me that he used to, you know, do this thing where he'd always heal on Stephanie, and that's, that's kind of like people liked it, the office liked it, they pushed it, they promoted it, and they would always try and they would always find something for them to do together on the show. And uh, he told me a story that, you know, Brian Gortz was a, a you know, big supporter of Jericho's, and, and they're in the meeting, you know, and then uh, Vince is like laying on his phone or reading papers or talking about the direction that Rhino and Jericho are going in. And then, like, Brian realizes Vince is not going to fuck about Jericho and Rhino at the time. And then, like, Brian's all of a sudden, like, the light bulb goes off in his head and it clicks. He goes, what if we put Stephanie with, with Rhino? And then he said, Vince's eyes, like, come up and goes, yeah, yeah, what's going on with Stephanie, Rhino, and Jericho? And then, like, that went on for, like, six months. Like, like Ken was saying, oh, this is near and dear to his heart. So I could totally see every on the first page of every script, they have, you know, active roster, Raw, active roster, SmackDown, injured roster, uh, SmackDown, whatever, active roster, developmental, injured developmental. And I guarantee you when they're trying to plug guys in, they go through that list. Every time Vince is skimming through the names, blah, 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 blah. Kennedy, Kennedy, what's Kennedy doing tonight? Let's, let's figure out what we're doing with Kennedy. I like that thing. I like that guy. It, it, <laughs> it's like, it's just, if you know Paul, like, He's fucking. He's a worker's worker, man. He's smart like that. He knows what'll make a guy tick. And maybe I'm not saying Ken was great for business, but hypothetically speaking, if Ken was shit for business, but his name was Ken Kennedy, I could still see Vince's eyes lighting up every time. Kennedy, what are we doing with this Kennedy guy? What are we doing with <laughs> Stephanie? Like, I like that Stephanie. What are we doing with her? Who is she <laughs> with? Oh, she's the biggest jobber ever. Let's put him in the main event in the cage tonight. <laughs> and if you remember uh, the big rumor at one point was that Ken Kennedy was going to be Vince McMahon's, like, illegitimate son, right? I, I was. Then I got in trouble. So what, what what happened there? Like, you were 
I guess you were pulled off TV. Uh, yeah, yeah. I uh, I got in trouble and I got suspended for 30 days. Literally the day before or the week before it was supposed to be revealed. So yeah, that was that was interesting. And they they did the big reveal in Green Bay, Wisconsin too. And I was there backstage and I got to watch. I was there because um, I, I can't remember why I actually went. Probably just because it was my hometown and I went to visit some folks. That's right. And you know what? I never really got an opportunity to wrestle in Green Bay. I don't think I ever got a, an opportunity to wrestle for it. I was injured the first time. And then the second time that you know, I was with the company, we went through Green Bay. I was suspended. So, eh. Yeah. You know, these are the things that I hope that our students will be able to learn from. My and mistakes. we're back. <laughs> yes. Now, as far as learning something, and, and you kind of made a point before, actually, both did about Paul Heyman and how he kind of thinking, what thinking, or stuff like that. What's something that you guys, you know, learned from Paul that you kind of pass along to some of your students? Because Paul Heyman is, you know, highly regarded as a very smart wrestling guy. You, you know, you know, the thing is about Paul is like. I don't think he's so much. I mean, he, I, I, I should say that he is a very smart wrestling guy. Paul is like a good manipulator. Nah, manipulator has like a negative connotation. I don't even mean that in a bad way. He can present something to you that you don't even know you like or dislike. So like, hmm. I always, I mean, if, if Paul was selling like houses, he'd be like number one real estate agent. If he was selling like Lamborghinis, he'd be like the highest grossing Lamborghini salesman ever. Like he just knows he he can talk to you for like three minutes and be like. This guy likes A, B, and C. Well, I'm going to give him capital A, capital B, capital C. He fucking hates X, Y, and Z. Well, I'm going to castrate X, Y, and Z in front of him and rate it. Like, he knows how to give you what you want and, and take away what you don't. And he's good at changing that for every, like, specific person. And when you're doing that, for, like, you know, what, like when he was on SmackDown, for example, not like ECW so much, but, like, 20,000 people a night, 2 million, 3 million people watching at home, 200,000 people watching every pay-per-view, that's pretty good to satisfy every single appetite, which is something that isn't done. Like, you know, I don't want to – there's nothing wrong with Raw. Maybe I've seen too much wrestling in my life, but when me and Ken were, were watching Raw to kind of get re-familiar with what the audience is, is seeing, expecting, what our students are expecting to become, you know, I was like, man, three hours is a long time to watch wrestling. And I didn't feel very satisfied that everything that I like about wrestling uh, – you know, I, I didn't get to see that. And and I feel like there's maybe a lot of people that didn't do that. But in three hours of wrestling, if you can't give me just a flavor or a sample of something I like, that's not very good. But then, you know, it's kind of – it's crazy how much uh, I kind of got not, – not disgruntled with wrestling, but I've seen a lot of it. It's like, you know, my one of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. But if Forrest Gump is on TV, like, I can't watch the whole fucking thing. Like, I've seen it a bazillion times. But with this WWE Network – I watch these old episodes of Raw and shit, and like I can watch, I can watch two hours wrestling. I'm like, holy shit, I can do this! Like I, th- I thought I couldn't do that before because that's the wrestling I like. That was my flavor, and I don't want three hours of that for the next 52 weeks out of the year. But if you can give me a couple segments of that, and then a couple segments of what my little brother likes, and then a couple segments of what Ken Kennedy likes, and then a couple segments of what the guy that works at Walmart likes, and then a couple segments of what the guy that works at Wall Street likes. That was Paul Gibbs. He could do that in, a, in his whole program. 
and I, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned from Paul was you have to be able to, you have to be willing to change. You have to, Paul Heyman always keeps his finger on the pulse of what is popular in, in, you know, in the public. And uh, he, like, he was ahead of the curve with the vampires. I mean, I know that that wasn't you know, a huge success, but he knew that that vampire thing was coming. The zombie craze was coming with ECW. Um, He's very good at being able to accentuate people's positives and hide their weaknesses. I, there was a wrestler down in OVW, Dean Visk, who was a good worker, um, just wasn't connecting all the dots necessarily with uh, you know promo work and everything like that. And I remember he cut this promo one time, and he just he was screaming, <laughs> his veins popping out of his neck it flying everywhere. Paul started using him just in the back. And, and, doing that, like, and he, would, he would link everything together. So like in the cor- through the course of the show, he would like highlight. He, he would uh, have one story with two guys, and then like there would be Dean. You know, all, okay, so there would be a promo going on. These two guys are talking. Right as they finish their promo, you hear in the background, Ah! There's no coffee! Ah! And the camera guy would like, oh, gotta go, and he would run down the hallway into the coffee lounge, and there's Dean with fucking, you know, big pot of coffee empty, screaming his head off. And then like, you go away from that, and then later on in the show there would be something completely different. Like I remember one time he went through a drive-through at McDonald's, and like he asked for no mustard on his hamburger, and he got, you put mustard on my fucking hamburger. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, it had to have been Ruben Cornette. It had to be Ruben Cornette. It was in a McDonald's. It was a fucking Wendy's. And then he was milkshake at <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kind of. Probably not. <laughs> so you're more of a uh, Heyman guy, obviously, than a uh, Cornette guy? I love Paul Heyman. I, hey, I, I'm a fan of Cornettes, too. I, I just love Paul Heyman. I wouldn't be sitting where I am today if it wasn't for Paul Heyman. He came down to OVW. I had been just like, just existing down there, trying my best to find my groove. Paul came down there, pulled me aside and said, you're the next guy out of here. I'm going to do so much stuff with you on TV. I'm going to highlight you every week. They're going to have to notice you. They're going to have to call you up. And five weeks later, I was on TV. I didn't get to work with Paul that much. Like, I was on that shitty ECW when, like, Paul was gone. Like, I, I literally actually started on the episode after. Oh, fuck. Maybe I wasn't. I don't remember. Anyway, I didn't really work that much with Paul. But I do remember when I was at home uh, in between the, like, um, so me and Muhammad got pulled off TV, and then they were just like, oh, you're kind of, you know, we got to figure out what we're going to do with you guys. So we're just sitting at home waiting. And then uh, I, I, forget this, I forget what exactly happened, but they didn't contractually, they didn't have to pay us. But then, like, something came up. I don't know if Mark complained or someone said something, but then all of a sudden, Johnny called me and goes, hey, you know, we're, we're going to start paying you again. And I was like, oh, oh, fantastic. Oh, my God, thank you so much. It's awesome. I'm going to take my dick at home, and you're going to pay me? Thank you. But, yeah, we want you to open up these South Wrestling. We want you to go down there and take a look at some guys, you know, see somebody you could tag with, somebody you could manage, somebody you could blah, blah, blah. Johnny never thought I could do anything on my own for some reason. He always wanted me to be with someone, which I get. You know, that's, that's what, that was what all he saw in me, which I totally understand. That's fine. 
So I went down to Deep South Wrestling. And then uh, I, it was fucking rotten. It was the worst fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. And then I, I called him. I said, Johnny, I got to go home. Like, I can't do this. Like, stop paying me. I'll go home. And he goes, no, 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 we'll still pay you. Just go, go to OVW instead. Okay. So when I went down to OVW, that was the first time I got to work with Paul Heyman. And uh, I, I talked to him for like a couple, over a couple of emails or whatever. Yeah, I'm coming down next week. Um, he's like, well, what the hell are you saying that? I was like, fuck, I don't know. Like, you tell me. You're the office, not me. And I was like, I'll probably just stay with Ken. And then when I stayed at Ken's house, uh, segue into a totally other thing that, like, this is crazy that me and Ken's careers are so parallel, but, like, nobody knows. This is like, we're like Penn and Teller that no one's ever seen. Uh, but <laughs> when I stayed with Ken, I, I literally had, like, the nicest hotel in Louisville, Kentucky, which is probably, like, a shitty Motel 6. But, like, the nicest hotel in Louisville, Kentucky, Every night, but I, I slept on Ken's couch because I, I like to talk to him and his girlfriend or whatever. And I remember one night it was like, I remember Dreamer warned me about this, and I didn't believe him. I thought he was ripping me. He's like, dude, Paul's going to call you in the middle of the night. Do not answer it. I was like, all right. So it's like fucking like, probably like 4 a.m. My phone rings. I'm like, what the fuck? Who called me at 4? Oh, my God, someone's done a car accident. They're in the hospital. I got to go save them. And I was like, it's Paul. Fuck, what are you calling me at 4 a.m. for? He's like, I got this guy, Bobby Lash. I'm like, all right. He's like, the office loves him. He's WrestleMania. He's WrestleMania, okay? I'm like, all right. He's like, here's the thing. Nobody likes you. <laughs> okay? What's the fuck you saying? Nobody likes you, but if you make Bobby look like a bazillion dollars, and I'm always telling the story because we were watching Impact tonight, and Bobby was in the main event, and we're trying to, you know, follow hashtags or whatever to try and get the name of our school out there, and I'm like, fuck. The only thing I did with Bobby is the shit Paul had us do in OBW. How can I find this OBW footage? How the fuck can I let the world know that me and Bobby worked one time? And, and Paul's thing was, if you can get the office to believe that Bobby is the guy, they will know that you are the guy that made him. And I was like, oh, my God, is this guy seriously think that I'm so fucking stupid and so fucking delusional that he wants me to make his guy thinking that's going to help me? I know for a fact I'm going to make Bobby, and they're going to be like, yep, he's Mr. WrestleMania. If I already the shit, let him go. And then I was like, I, and, you know, I obviously did the thing. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, you're so smart, Paul. Yeah, if I make him look like a million dollars, I'll benefit from this. And then, you know what? He was that smart because I did, and I don't know if it was related, but when I went back to work the next time, everybody in the office who kind of like I was like the new guy, and I, didn't, I somehow got more over with the office by not being there and making Bobby, and, and then when I got back, my kind of spot was like, hey, you know, uh, we just re-signed Chuck Palumbo. We didn't like him very much, but let's see what you can do with him. Maybe there's something there. Oh, hey, you know, Cody Rhodes is super green, but we know we want to run with him because he's a Rhodes. You know, he's got these kids. Like, let's see what you can do with the coach. That was like my job kind of. My job was kind of like, hey, we know this guy's got something. We don't know what it is. Can you find it for us, please? And and I was happy to do that because that kept me on the house show. That kept me paid. That kept me on pay-per-view. Like, I was never the guy winning or never the guy getting the belts. But, like, in WWE, I really felt like that was my spot. My spot was, like, the guy that we know he has something. Like, who can we put him with that we know doesn't give a fuck about, like, how good he looks or how strong he looks. That could just be like, let's see what this – that's all I ever care about. It, 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 as sad as it is, I only really care what the fans think. I, I never want the fans to be like, Man, that fucking Jabari sucks. Like, he's a shit. And the casual fan does think that because they never win. But, like, the real fan, like, kind of knows that, that it's kind of funny that, like, I've become really close friends with Xbox lately. And he told me, like, we were talking one time because you know you got my job, right? I was like, what's that? Like, my job was always, like, the measuring stick of, like, who can be on TV. 
like, if, if I could have a good match with him, like, yeah, this guy's good enough. You know, he might be great. He might be the shit. But if he can make a good match on Sean, we can throw money with him maybe someday. Which one? Your story where you sort of Magnus. This story goes to you. No, Nick. Oh, my. They didn't know what they were going to do with it. They were going to fire him. They were going to fire him. Well, you tell the story. That's good. So, like, this is kind of the difference between WWE and TNA. Kind of like, they didn't. That was my job in WWE, kind of like the office and that. Like, when they're like, what can we get out of this guy? Let's put him with Davari and see what he has. In TNA, that was kind of my job as well, but they didn't know that's what I was doing. They were just, they just they didn't, they didn't realize that, like, let's see what this guy, how can we find out what this guy has? Let's run with Davari. They didn't have that mentality. It would happen by accident. Um, and one of them was Magnus. And Magnus had the same problem that a lot of guys had. I had it in All Japan. Uh, CM Punk had it in Zero One. That we went there and we thought we had to be their guy. I went to All Japan and I said, I watched, before I got, I got booked for All Japan and I was like, oh yeah, you're, you're leaving for Japan in a couple of weeks. And so in that couple of weeks, I'm watching All Japan, uh, I don't remember, DVDs, I guess. I don't know what the fuck you watched, but, but I watched All Japan content and uh, I, was, I was seeing what they do and I said, okay, I have to do this. Okay, I have to do that. And I got there and I was doing it and they're like, dude, like we have a bazillion fucking Japanese in Japan. Like we need Americans. Okay. I, I figured that out. Same with Punk. Punk went there and tried to wrestle like the Japanese. Like, we got a ton of Japs that wrestle way better than you do. Like, you do the American shit. And then Punk got it. And that was the same thing we have with Magnus. Magnus is actually a really, really, really good sports entertainer. And then he came to TNA, and he was like, I got to be like this wrestler, wrestler. I got to have good wrestling matches. That's not his strength. And he was wrestling guys that are way better at him than it. And, of course, the guys that, thinks that you can do it, is like, okay, we'll do blah, 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 that is no problem for that. I'll do the machine guns, for example, either one of them. They could do everything. And, and Magnus said, yeah, I'll wrestle like you. I said, okay, great, we're going to do everything. Magnus tried to do everything, and he couldn't and for, like, several weeks. And, like, and, you know, not many people know this, but to get a work visa, you have to pay a guy a lot. I think it's, like, 60 grand or 70 grand is what you have to make in order to be able to be sponsored to say, like, hey, this guy is so special he needs to make this much money to be able to come to the United States and work. And Magnus is one of those guys. And, and TNA doesn't have tons of, like, you know, excess money to piss away. So they're paying this guy way more than a lot of guys in the spot, and he's not delivering because he's trying to deliver some product that he's not. And they were going to fire him. And then we luckily got to wrestle on a European tour, and I said, bro, fucking don't do any of that shit. Just do your shit. And, and we did it on the first night. And, you know, those tours like 10 days long or, you know, 10 – 15 days long, but like 10 matches long. And then I gave him a little bit of tweaking, and then we did it again the next night. And I did a little bit of tweaking, and did it again the next night. And I forget who the agent was, but someone was emailing back to the office, like, dude, we are making a big mistake. Magnus is the guy. We were right in the first place. Like, he is not the, he is not the fucking, uh, you know, sale of bad goods that we thought he was. He is plenty qualified to be our guy. And he did end up being the guy. And, and my honest opinion not as big as a guy as he should have been. Like, England was TNA's biggest market. They drew more money in England than anywhere else in the world. And they had a British guy who could go, who was jacked, who was tall, who could talk, who doesn't drink or do drugs or party too hard, and you could put him in, like, newspaper interviews on a radio show like this one. He won't cuss every five seconds like I do. Like, he, he was a great guy. But, you know, it was just one of those things. It's like, 
that's what we can want to do in our school. Like, fortunately for us, this isn't the NBA. This isn't the NFL. You don't have to be the best basketball player or you don't have to be the best uh, football player to be a top guy. Kobe Bryant is the man because he's the best. In pro wrestling, John Cena is the man. He is far from the best. Usually the best guy is match one, match two, working with a guy like John Cena. Hmm. Now, what about when they had to, you know, like you're saying, they put you with a guy and then they, they see how, what the guy has and stuff. What about when they give you a guy like a big project like Greg Colley? What do they say to you there? Like, good luck with this guy. You know, like, <laughs> so, it's kind of funny. I have like a dual role in that purpose. One was check out guys that they knew they had something in, and the other one was I was like their heater. Like, I, it's so fucked up because there's guys that were so over for certain reasons, but the office never liked that. I don't know why to this day to me. Like, I don't promote shows, I don't run shows, but if I was running a show and the audience said, I love this guy for this reason, I'll just give him that reason. And one of those things is like Kurt Angle, for example. Kurt Angle was wrestling Cena after Cena's first big push and, like, he won the world title at WrestleMania and stuff. And then that was the first, uh, shortly thereafter, was the first crowd turn on him was when he did his angle with Kurt Angle. And then, like, they were like, for the first time ever, the audience is chanting, Cena sucks. And then, like, the office lost their shit. They went fucking crazy. They're like, oh, my God, our, like, our Hulk Hogan, the audience was chanting, Cena sucks, which hadn't happened ever in his career from the day he started until that point. Even when he was a heel, they didn't chant, Cena sucks. And then uh, that was happening, and they're like, what the fuck can we do? And then for some crazy reason, uh, I ended up getting in the mix with Kurt. Like, maybe Davari still has enough residual heat from that Muhammad shit where it'll work. And it did. And, that, and at that point, like, the light bulb went off that I was the guy to keep, to get a guy heat as a heel. And then, like, any time, and it really only happened on SmackDown, sadly, but, like, on SmackDown, any time they needed a guy to be the heel, immediately, that was my thing. Was I, I was put with them. But, like, that was Kurt Angle, for example. They needed people like Kurt more than Cena, so they put me with Kurt, so Kurt was a heel. They needed Mark Henry was being jobbed out and fucking Mae Young and you know, all this crazy shit, and they needed him to be the top heel, so they put him with me. And then, you know, Undertaker needed a giant to work with because Vince loves, you know, Giants wrestling Undertaker for some reason, even though they never have a good matches. He always has a good match with the little guys. But Vince loves Giants wrestling Undertaker. They had this clueless Giants to wrestling Undertaker, and they needed him hot, like, in a night, and they put him with me. It kind of became my shtick, like my, my other role. But I, I want to say other role, I mean my first role, and then it kind of transitioned in the ring. But, yeah, that, that was kind of my thing. And, and it's kind of funny, there was a Razor Ramon thing on uh, – on uh, the WWE Network the other night I watched. And, he, like, he was kind of – it was so funny because he says things that I feel all the time. And when I say them, people think I'm crazy. But he was saying, like, dude, my – I don't know if Tito Santana feels the same way, but he says, my job was I was Tito Santana. Like, if you could work with me, and apparently, like, you know, in the 80s and 70s, if you could work with Tito and the crowd was into it, that meant you were ready to wrestle the champion. And Razor was like, I was never the champion. I was never the guy. I was the guy that you work with, and if, if the audience liked me and you, then the audience would like you and the champ. And, and that was kind of, you know, not that I, not that I was in that position that they worked with me, that means they worked with the champ, but I, I really, I, that resonated a lot with me. I was like, yeah, I felt the exact same way. That like, if I could get a guy, if I could, if I could make the people 
sink their teeth into a guy, that guy could work. He might not. He might, but he could. You know, and that was, and it was funny, like, it was a weird thing, like, 2012, um, they were bringing, like, some guys from a few years back, like, on a semi-regular basis. Like, one week they called Trump Benjamin in to do a dark match because they forgot who he was, apparently, in a year and a half. And then, like, <laughs> the next week they brought in Trevor Murdoch to do a dark match because, again, they had no, apparently, footage on the motherfucker and needed to see who he was and what he could do. And then the next week they called me, and I went into the dark match. It was funny because when I went, it was in Tampa, and Ken was there for TNA that night. And we actually hung out that night, so we partied all night. So it was, it was double... It served a dual purpose. Like, I got to do Ken. I got to do Dark Match. I got to pay off. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why are they bringing in all these old fuckers back? You know, by old fuckers, I mean the year old. They already forgot about us. Uh, and where were they going with this story? So I had a little bit of post question, you know. What were we talking about? You were kind of saying, oh, yeah, make it. Wait, what were we talking about? You were kind of saying, like, the, like the Tito Santana thing where you were kind of, uh, you know, you were so over, but then you were saying, you know, you met up with Ken. Yeah, I don't know. It probably wasn't a good story. I forgot where we were going with this. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm sure I had a, a rhyme and or a reason, but I don't get it. No, you were you were saying you were back to you were uh, they were bringing guys back who had been removed from a few years, and you met up with Ken that night, and you were kind of wondering why they uh, you know they were bringing guys back that they were only there you know about a year or so removed. I don't remember where I was going with this, though. <laughs> there, there was a reason I thought this scenario up. Yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah, you know, is there a format you're looking at that uh, he can he can reference and tell me where we're talking, what was the fuck we were talking about before this uh, tryout story? Something probably about our school, I hope. Well, you, you had mentioned something though that was interesting. You said you saw Ray, the Razor Ramon thing on the network, and he was talking about how he he was never the top guy. And then you mentioned how uh, Tito had mentioned, or Razor mentioned Tito Santana and stuff like that. But it's funny, uh, Tito definitely he loved that distinction. And Tito even threw in the, the other caveat that if the show didn't draw, he never got in trouble because he wasn't the top guy, so it didn't matter. He just got all the credit for being being a good worker and getting guys over. Yeah, I mean, that was something I always, I was like, if you go online, you're never going to read somebody rant and rave about the great match Jabari had, but you're never going to read about the abortion I had either. Like, hmm. and that, that's, that's okay with me. And, and I always equate that kind of in the same ballpark that I feel like Kane doesn't get enough credit. Kane, no one can tell you, like, oh, man, my favorite match is Kane versus so-and-so, but no one will ever also be like, man, oh, my God, Kane versus so-and-so is the worst match I've ever seen in my whole life. Like, they're just, like, I don't know, like, like, we're utility players. We're shortstops. Like, that's that's kind of our spot. And some guys hate that. Some guys are really good at it, and they fucking drive them crazy. But I was like, dude, that works for me, because that, that position, I made a lot of money for never, like, being, like, a top dude. Like, it's, I didn't know that happened. When I got into wrestling, I didn't even give a fuck about the money. Like, I was wrestling for a fucking pack of ramen noodles, and someone would do my laundry for me. Like, I didn't give a shit. But when I started making money and realizing, I was going, man, I am way overpaid. Like, compared to, like, I'm like, you mean me and the Intercontinental Champion make the same amount of money? That's crazy. Hmm. Now, as I start to wind it down here, I just want to direct this question towards uh, Ken, Mr. Anderson here. Very, very distinct, you know, very very big distinction here with, with you, and not a lot of guys can say this. You had a feud with both 
The Undertaker and with Sting, which is which I just I just find that very fascinating, very cool because obviously Sting was the face of WCW, Undertaker was the face of WWF for a long time. What are your thoughts on having like that crazy distinction of being, being able to have a few with both of those two guys? You know, I remember the first night I worked Taker. Taker asked to work with me after he saw my match with Batista at the Great American Bash. I got bashed open. I was a bloody mess. We ended up having a good, a good, really good match. And that was the first time that I had, that was my first major pay-per-view. And I went out there and uh, in the eyes of my peers and, and the people who were in charge, I went out there and crushed it, the Great American Bash. It was 2006, I believe. Oh, my God. So he came up to me the next week and said, Hey, I saw what you did with Batista. I think we can make some money together to work with you. I'm going to talk to Vince about it. And then a week after that, he came and said, we're working a program. We're going to get at least three pay-per-views out of it. And we're going to work next week on the house shows. I want to get a feel of you, for you. And, you know, so anyway, I believe it was in Oklahoma City. And we went out, and uh, I, I, he, he literally in the back, he said, we're not talking about anything. He said, I will call everything to you out in the ring, on the fly. Just listen. And that is unbelievably, incredibly freeing. It's a wonderful thing because I don't have to remember anything. I hate remembering things. I don't have a very good memory. I lose shit all the time, forget things all the time, forget about what we were talking in mid-sentence. Um but we went out there, and he literally called everything to me. Punched me once. Duck this and light me up. Uh, this, that, and the other thing. And then we had a good match. And then the next night, he said, uh, okay, you know, what's one thing that you want to throw in there? Is that like, you know, a little piece of offense or something like that. You want to do a little spot or something like that. And I threw something in. And then the next night, he let me do a little more, a little more. And uh, he literally took me under his wing and you know, taught me a lot. A lot about stealing the crowd, and I remember that first night though that I was standing in the ring, the lights went out, and I heard that gong, and I literally I got goosebumps. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, how the hell did I get here? I'm just the average guy from a small town, you know, in Wisconsin, twelve thousand people, seventeen thousand people, something like that. How did I get here? And it was just a, that was a magical moment. And, you know, I've never forgotten that. And I always tried to have that feeling every time that I was out there. And, and you know, Sting, same thing. It was a guy that I watched when I was younger and uh, one of my favorites. And I remember when I was coming up, I would go down and I would do dark matches at, say, TNA. And I remember Road Dog one time told me, so I was like, you remind me of a young Sting. Uh, hmm. And uh, just just in your look, not your work. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he, he said, and, and so then when I believe it was Vince Russo put us together at TNA, I just asked him. I said, "What about?" Because I used to do the blonde hair, and I, at the time, I think I had gone back to my natural hair color. I was like, "What about? What if I go blonde, spike it up, cut it into a flat top?" And would you know I dress up like him, and you know it turned out to be one of the most fun things that I've ever done. 
And something that's sort of surreal is here I am. You know, I, I'm still a wrestling fan. I think wrestlers are the biggest wrestling fans. We're such fans of the business that we decided to shave our legs, wear t- tights and baby oil, and pretend to fight each other. Um, and here was this fan inside sitting in the, the makeup chair or in the bathroom or whatever, and Sting was painting my face for me. He did the face paint for me, and I was actually wearing my old gear. It was just, it was really, really cool. Experience. Definitely awesome. Definitely awesome that you were able to feud with both Taker and Sting. I just find that very, very cool because not a lot of guys can say that. Very cool distinction. Now, as far as Ken and then as far as Devore, just you know, you guys can just answer this. Do you have a favorite match or maybe two favorite matches or maybe a couple favorite matches? You know, Ken, you, and then Devore. That's really, really hard to sort of argue about. Some of the stuff that we did on the independence. Um, one of my favorite matches was just just because of its gravity was that I was at WWE for a tryout. Davari was already on the main roster. I remember they used to do this thing where in the beginning of the day or in the middle of the day, they would have all the indie guys, all the local guys sort of get their gear on and stand around the ring. And occasionally they would let us get in there and roll around we get to have matches, so on and so forth. I remember this one day, they just said, all right, everybody sort of get on the apron and, and tag in and out. Just tag a, guy, a different guy, get in there for a little while, work around, show us some stuff, tag out. And I remember I was standing next to Tavari at the time, and he just got, like some guys were in there and they were just chain wrestling. They were just exchanging holes, going back and forth, back and forth. And he said, that's not what they're looking for. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, they don't care if you can chain wrestle. Like, they don't care if you can do a backflip. They don't care. They they want to see characters. They want to see people that they can sink their teeth into, that the fans can, can get behind emotionally. And so it was right around that time that Finley looked over at the two of us, and he said, you and you, get in the ring. Give me five minutes. Go. And Jamari just said, and we had so much stuff in the tank. We had wrestled each other so many times on the indies. Nobody there were times where we would wrestle each other three times in a week, uh, you know, once in Chicago, once in Milwaukee, and then once downtown Minneapolis at, at First Avenue. And we had so much stuff in the tank that, you know, he literally, he called stuff to me. Here, how, how much younger than you? Or how much younger are you than me? Like eight years, nine years. Like that. That. Yeah, I met him when he was 17 years old, you know. 16 years old, and um, he called everything to me and led me through, and we had a great little match with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a finish, and, you know, I, I played the heel, he played the baby face. Which is crazy, but that, they never did it. Everybody else had, like I said, everybody else was just getting in and out, chain wrestling, and stuff, not, not showing any character whatsoever. And then the next day, Art Anderson came up to me and goes, uh, hey, kid, uh... <laughs> Yeah, you know, you had a hell of a fucking match with that Taliban kid. Uh, he's like, I'm going to try to get you a fucking job because it was good. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to go back and I want you to put your knee pads, your elbow pads on. I want you to stretch out because you're going to go again. You're going to go full fucking tilt. And I'm going to have Hunter and everybody else out there. So we stretched out, put together a little match, went down to the ring and stood there all afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> And never got a chance to actually get in there and do it. But 
You know, it was that that Arn came up to me later and said, look, I know you didn't get to get in there today, but I really was impressed. You know, I, I, yeah, I worked with him a couple times before with uh, when I wrestled Rod. I wrestled Rod back as an extra twice when I was there. And Arn was always the – he was the uh, the agent. And I remember at the time he would say, like, hey, kids, no offense to you, but he's the guy here. He's the guy with the job. Tonight is not about you. It's about him. Which is good. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, absolutely. That is my job, and I understand my job. I'm fine with that. And I went out there, and I tried to do my best just to make Rodney Mack look good. And then, you know, so that ultimately was a a huge piece of the puzzle that led to me getting my job. And then years, you know, or months later, when I finally got up to the active roster, I was working some local guys, and Arn, you don't even, I don't think you remembered that he said it to me, but, like, the guy that I was working with, he said, hey, no offense, but <laughs> tonight, it's not about you, it's about him. <laughs> um, it's actually funny, I, 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 fuck, I kind of believe that happened, because it did that with everybody. It, it, it kind of, like, my closest, it, it's kind of weird, like, I'm finding out this later after fucking years and years and hours and hours of therapy that, like, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time as a fucking 16-year-old kid breaking into the business when everybody says the Attitude Era was this crazy, fucked-up, like, insane time on the road. Nobody knows that before the Attitude Era was way worse because nobody knew about it. And those are the guys that I kind of came up with. So, like, when the Attitude Era was hot, and I was watching it on TV, like, in seventh or eighth grade or whatever, and I said, I want to do that. The guys in the indies were all the fuck-ups from the fucking late 80s and early 90s, and those guys were fucking certifiably sociopaths. Like, those are the guys that I went up and down on the road, and I was a super young, impressionable fucking 10th grade kid. Like, that's what I was like, oh, this is what grown men act like. I should act like that, too. So it was it was a really fucked up place for me to be, and and I realized this later that like Ken was closer to like like a oh, a big brother or father figure. Like <laughs> we were joking about it today, but like I didn't like the idea of eating pussy, and Ken was like, "What? Eating pussy's awesome." I was like, "Really? <laughs> like, yeah, it's great." I was like, "This is great. I love eating pussy." You know, so like. Kind of a father figure, kind of a big brother, you know, and, and we had this the other day, he didn't know, like, I haven't been shit-faced, blackout drunk in, like, uh, since I was, like, 16 years old. That was the last time I was shit-faced, blackout drunk. And the reason I've never been that way again is because I was so fucked up, Ken literally had to carry me like a bride, like, over the threshold, like a baby, because I was knocked the fuck. Before that, mind you, I was screaming, crying, angry, happy, sad, like every emotion you get the gamut. And then I finally passed out. And he literally carried me like a baby from the Mall of America in Minneapolis all the way to his apartment and tucked me in the bed. So some days Ken was my dad. Some days Ken was my big brother. Some days Ken was my best friend. So, like, it's weird that we kind of just have this insane career. Like, everyone knows about uh, what's uh, generic. What's El Generico's name? Uh, him Sammy and like, Zane. Kevin, yeah, Sam Zane, Kevin Owens, Dean, whatever. Everybody knows about that. Everybody knows about Punk and Cabana. Everybody knows about Hunter and Sean. Like, me and Ken are like as close as friends. You know, Hall and, Hall and Nash. Like, me and Ken are as close as friends as you get, and nobody knows. We never had a chance to do it. So, like, when you talk about like special matches, like, I kind of knew 
WWE was going to sign me, I had this, like, the same way I feel with my little brother. My little brother, Arya Dabar, is going to be a coach with us as well. He's going to help coach uh, when he's in town, but he's working so much these days that he's not going to be around, like, all the time. But when he's around, he wants to help out, and I'd love to have him help out because he has his finger on the pulse way better than me and Ken do about what's hot today. And, and he's going to teach at the academy. And, like, when when I think about shit like that, like, I knew I was going to get signed. Like, I, Dr. Tom wouldn't tell, Dr. Tom Pritchard was the guy who used to hire and fire people and, like, developmental guys. And I knew I was going to get signed. He wouldn't say it, but he would say it. He'd be like, uh, Sean, will you call me every Friday at 1 p.m.? I was like, why? He's like, just tell me what you're doing. Tell me you're not injured. Tell me you're getting in better shape. Tell me you've had more matches. Tell me what you've done. Just every Friday, call me. All right, and I did that. I was like, why the fuck is he having me do this? Like, do this to everybody? I don't want to talk to these fucking indie pieces of shit. Just call me every Friday. All right. So I had this inkling, and then so I was like, fuck, I'm going to get signed. And, like, I kind of had this feeling. There's this building. It's a famous building in Minneapolis. Like, it's kind of funny. The big arena we do Raw and SmackDown out of is called the Target Center. You know, that's where the Minnesota Timberwolves play. That's where we do TV. But across the street is First Avenue. And First Avenue is almost a just as, if not a little bit more famous in the Target Center, because that's the building that, like, Prince made. Like, Prince was, like, Minneapolis' like, star attraction. He would go there unadvertised, play, you know, he's the biggest fucking thing at the time. You know, the movie Purple Rain was filmed in First Avenue, so it's a really famous venue, even though it only holds a couple thousand people. And they'll do weird shit, like huge bands, huge cans, like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine. They could go across the street to the Target Center and sell 20,000 tickets, but they'll go across the street and do like 1,200 at first half. So that's a super famous building. Jerry Lynn's wrestled there. Xbox wrestled there. You know, Sean Waldman's wrestled there. Me and Ken wrestled there. Austin Aries, my little brother now, Eric Cannon, another one of our coaches, Molly Holly, another one of our – like, that's Minneapolis's venue. And I just knew, I'm like, like me and Ken were booked there. I'm like, this is my last match. Like, this is it. I'm going to get signed after this match. I don't know why I knew that. I was probably – Every reason I thought I was going to get signed was incorrect. I got signed for completely other reasons. I don't know. But I just knew, like, that's your last match. And that match there is probably my favorite one. I fucking don't remember wrestling Hulk Hogan, like, four times. I don't remember it. I've been on Piper's Pit. I don't remember it. I got a stunner from Steel Austin. I don't remember it. But I fucking remember that match, like, it was yesterday. It's crazy. I don't know why. I don't know how come. But it was that building. It was in my hometown. It was with my... Best friend, slash brother, slash fucking uh, big uh, dad. Creepy uncle. Slash creepy molesting uncle, slash now business partner. <laughs> like, it, it all it all worked out, and that's, that's probably my favorite match. And, I, and I'm, we've had about 20 matches in that building, but I guarantee you, Ken knows exactly which match I'm talking about. And I remember it's funny, too, that, like, uh, she gave me some, like, atomic draw. I don't fucking do it. He did something to me where his mouth, like, his teeth... <laughs> smash on the top of my head and I still have a scar from it you know like fucking like 18 staples on my head and like his mouth at the top of my head and blood just shot out everywhere and I went oh my god I just knocked out everyone at Ken's teeth and I looked up and Ken looked at me like a ghost he's like oh my god I just killed the heart I was like what happened and I I literally had a vagina on the top of my head <laughs> and my, my head was just busted open and we didn't plan on it we bled in that building both of us a million times but the, that time when we didn't plan on it and it happened, fuck, it added so much to that match because I was like, you know, both of us were kind of doing, like, job matches here and there, but, like, I was being on TV. Like, they used to have these shows called, like, Sunday Night Heat and, like, Shotgun and shit, and, like, I was on those shows, and, like, I started doing Ring of Honor stuff. So, like, 
the Minnesota guy, the audience, were kind of the same damn sort of. And, like, they kind of knew I was leaving. It was really weird. It was like a pre-internet world, a pre-YouTube world, but, like, everybody had that feeling. And that just added so much more to that match. And, and wrestling my best friend, and, like, honestly, God, like, and, you know, I worked with Hogan in Madison Square Garden, like, sold-out building. I'm sure I got paid a lot of money for it. Like, that's not really that special to me. Like, that first half match is really special to me. And I just got to add one thing to that. I, I know this, you know, we've, we've been on this for quite a while. And hopefully you guys don't have the time limit. Hopefully you can add it. <laughs> but uh, when, so I was visiting my girlfriend in Green Bay. She was working at Target, and I went to visit her on her lunch break. And Davari called my phone. I answered it, and he goes, hey, man, I just want you to know that you're the first guy that I'm calling, but Dr. Tom just called me and hired me, and I, I got a job. And I just remember I was so happy that I was, you know, I was shaking a little bit. I was trembling a little bit. I was so happy because I knew what he had gone through, you know. We had gone through it together, busting our asses, even busting his tail, and um, just, just being a sponge for years. And I remember... Then I went over and I said to her, I said, Tavari just got hired, man. And she looked at me with these sad puppy dog eyes and she kind of tilted her head to the side and she was like, are you okay? And I went, what, what do you mean? Am I okay? And she was like, well, aren't you, are you sad, you know, because, like, you know, he got there first and, like, you know, I, I, and I was like, bitch, my fucking best friend just got hired, just got his dream job on so happy for him, and it was like right then and there that I knew that that girl, that girl was not the girl for me. <laughs> yep. I got a one question I want really want to ask uh, Mr. Anderson, just because it's kind of funny, but you know, kind of silly. What did you think of the Aces and Eight? Did you like it? Did you not like it? What, did, what were your thoughts? I I had a I had a great time doing it. What? The Aces and Eights. I wish that we had had more time to sort of get into the reality of what a biker club is like. There was so much stuff that we could have done behind the scenes, you know, rather than just run in, run in, run in, run in, run in. So there was one night I remember, like we went out there six times in one night. Ugh, it was well, just brutal. Like they always hit that same music. And uh, but but I remember like they never showed us riding motorcycles. They, you know, I think there was one time where they had some motorcycles outside. We did oh, a little yeah. pre-tape outside. Yeah. I think AJ rode in on a ninja. But like you know, it, there's prospecting that goes on in uh, in a motorcycle club. If you want to be a biker, if you want to be in one of those clubs, like, you have to – you're hazed in for a year or two years. Like, they really make you mop floors and, and you know, run the mop at the uh, – they just give you, like, menial tasks. They treat you like shit. So I always thought, like, at TNA, when we were doing it, it was like, oh, someone still wants to be in the club? You're in. I like when you know it's kind of like NWO when it started. They started like bringing everybody in, you know, and that was my only negative memory of that. But I had a blast, and I was doing it with my friends, and a lot of us became really, really close. Yeah, so you need somebody to. Uh... Sorry, oh yeah, Ron. go ahead. 
No, no, go, go. No, you said, it's your show. God damn it, speak. No, no. I mean, hey, no. I've just been I've been digging it. I was gonna say you need uh, somebody needs to get initiated and uh, kidnap Joseph Parks and uh, hide him in some kind of cave and you know take Hulk Hogan hostage. So I guess uh, more the merrier. You know, adding guys to the group is necessary. Uh, yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. I know exactly what you're talking about. So I watch that show every week. But um, what I was going to say about that, is, it's kind of funny that, like, at the Academy, me and Ken always knew what we needed to do to make it. And it was kind of funny that we, like, had these conversations on a regular basis. Like, we knew. We knew. We said, we have to do this and we have to do that. But we just had no means of doing it. We, there, there was no – even if there, if there was a place that – pay us $10 million and we will teach you how to do it, there, that place didn't exist. We would find the $10 million. We know what we were missing. We know what we needed. And, and that's something that today, and it's kind of funny that I firmly believe the only reason the WWE is, I shouldn't say WWE, but like NXT, for example, or the developmental, the, you know, the performance center, is the way it is, is because Hunter was a wrestler. At one point in time, Hunter said, fuck, I know exactly what I need to make it to fucking WrestleMania, but just I can't get that anywhere. And I think that's why, because Vince McMahon doesn't know. Vince McMahon never had a dream of making it to WrestleMania. Vince McMahon never fucking saw the biggest pay-per-view of the year and said, fuck, I want to be there. He never had that, like, feeling. So when someone said, like, hey, Vince, we need tomorrow's superstars, they go, oh, get a, get a cheap warehouse and throw a ring in there and fucking teach him how to wrestle. That's, that's all he knows. But Hunter, after he made it, pretty much on his own, I'm assuming, like was like, fuck, if these motherfuckers gave me this a decade ago, I could have been fucking Triple H fucking in 1994. But he didn't have that. That's what I think he's doing. And that's what me and Ken always have the same fucking feeling about that. Like, when we got to Raw and SmackDown, the reason we were successes is because there was people that knew like everything, pretty much everything. Again, like Ken said, in the first thing of the interview, through trial and error, they knew what works from their success, and they knew it doesn't work from their failures. When they gave us that shit, me and Ken got it. And I was like, fuck, if some motherfucker told me this 10 years ago, I wouldn't have had to drive from fucking Green Bay or Minneapolis to Nashville, Tennessee for 50 bucks. I could have gone from fucking Minneapolis to Madison Square Garden tomorrow, and I would have been in the main event. And we did do it. Fucking after 10 years of spinning our wheel. And the only and I see a guy like Finn Balor, for example, and I'm like, fuck, that is awesome. This guy's first night on TV, they put him in the main event of SummerSlam, the second biggest shit of the year, and he did fine because he had everything he needed to get there. And that's what me and Ken want to do. WWE is doing that now to sign talent. There is a bazillion unsigned talent that we want to give them the same opportunities. Yeah, and there's no two better guys that I could possibly think of as a team to own and operate a place like you guys have been talking about for the past hour plus. And, you know, without a doubt, as yeah, things get ready to launch, and you guys are getting ready to uh, really get it off the ground, if you, you know, the way we usually like to end it, we say, hey, where do you see yourself in five years? Or, hey, what's your legacy, you know, in the business? But if you look at the academy, you look at what you want on paper, where do you see yourself a year from now, let alone five years? What do you see you guys doing in a year with this and, and bringing in this first class that's coming November? And what do you think 12 months from today you're going to be saying about looking back on the first year of the Academy? 
12 months from today from the Academy, I want to sign talent with either WWE, if TNA is still around, or the fuck that is, or like, you know, New Japan or AAA. I want to sign talent where just, hey, I've got to quit my day job, and I'm making way more than money now. I'm doing what I love, and I can make my mortgage. I can make my car payment. I can make my wife's car payment. I can send my kid to private school. I'm fucking wearing brand-new Nikes. I'm driving a Mercedes-Benz. Whatever the fuck it is that that person wants, I want them to be able to do it and say, because of professional wrestling. That's, that's what I want, and I feel really, really confident because, you know, it's some people know, some people don't. Like, I've been going around wrestling schools in the United States, Canada wrestling around independence everywhere, like, especially in Europe and stuff, and seeing what they're doing. He's doing seminars and teaching guys in the U.K. and all over Europe, really. And, you know, I, I, I'm i going down to NXT a little bit to do, like, a guest trainer, guest coach, whatever the fuck it's called. But, like, we're, we're like, looking at this shit and being like, man, like, there is, like, one of my closest friends is Joey Matthews, uh, Joey Mercury, and, like, he told me, like, you know, when he kind of had the same job as me. Like, well, our, our job, we were never, like, the guy. We were like, hey, we think this guy is going to be the guy in a couple of years. So just, like, make sure the audience doesn't turn on. And when he got to the agent job and he's, like, doing shit, we were, like, talking not too long ago. Jamie Noble is actually another one that's kind of in the same position. You know, to the fans, me and Jamie Noble are jobbers. Like, who the fuck is Jamie Noble? Who the fuck is Devari? We're just the cruiserweight jobbers. But, like, the office knew what we could do, and now Jamie actually got to do it for the office. And he, I did a, I did a loop with him not too long ago, and he told me, like, dude, like, I loved wrestling and being a nobody and having the audience go bananas and being like, hey, there's guys that you're pushing that don't make the crowd do this, and I'm a nobody and I'm doing this. He says, I love it when fucking Seth Rollins tears the house down even more because he's doing what I told him to. And then Joey told me the same thing. And I haven't done it yet. A little bit with my little brother. My little brother does everything I tell him. And he is going places. And he's going to be an assistant coach of the academy. And I, I don't know how much Ken has that experience with that too, but I got a strong feeling he's going to feel the same way Ken felt when he like beat like you know, the fucking Jeff Hardy or Singer or whatever the fuck. The point I'm trying to make is when he did, like, good shit, the office pushed, and the way he felt, I think he's going to feel just as rewarded, as, and just like he said about me. Like, fucking Ken was way more experienced than I. Ken was, like, the guy that was helping this little fucking Arab kid from Minneapolis around, don't loop. You know, like, the way he probably felt when I was successful, I think he's going to feel the same way about the kids at the Academy. Like, we're passionate about this shit. The Academy, we want to get people there. We want to see, like, guys that we know could have made it. A guy like Paul Bergman, for example, could have made it. Fucking a guy like Brent Albright, you know, Gunnar Scott, whatever the fuck his name was, like, he could have made it. But he didn't have the preparation by the time. Muhammad, fuck me. Muhammad could have made it. But by the time he got to the show, he was ill-prepared. Like, we want to prepare guys so when they get there, they are Finn Balor. Finn Balor killed himself in Europe and New Japan for years before he got to the show. Nobody knows that. Everybody says, oh, and on his first night in, he was a fucking overnight success. Fuck that. There's a guy, uh, like the hottest show on TV, the highest rated show on television right now is Modern Family. Dude on there, his name is, uh, his name, Dad, I don't know what his name is. Ty Brunel. He was on Jay Leno the other night. Jay Leno was like, oh, my God, look at you. You're, you're an overnight success. You're on the hottest show on television. You're the highest rated show. And they kind of healed on him. He's like, fuck you, the overnight success. Because I've been busting my ass for fucking years. I've been on auditions every day for the last 12 years. 
Like, I, I fucking, I'm not an overnight success. Like, I worked my ass off to get here. And me and Ken did the same thing. But there is overnight successes. We want to have overnight successes. We want to train guys that when they go to the performance center, like, kind of like me and Ken were, like, like when we got to the performance center, like, the people that knew were like, you're way too, not performance center, OBW. Like, you guys are way too qualified for this shit. You know how to run the ropes. You know how to bump. You know how to lock up. Like, you don't need to be here. And both of us, I made it on the road in a couple of weeks, and Ken made it in a couple of months. Like, we want to have that again. I don't want my little brother to get signed, which I feel confident he will be, and spend fucking four years in NXT. That's stupid. I don't want to have a student come to the Academy School of Professional Wrestling, train with me and Ken, and go into the developmental territory for a year. Like, I want him to get to the developmental territory. I want him to get to the WP Performance Center, go to TNA, go to New Japan, and then be like, fuck, this guy's ready. What the fuck is he doing here? Let's put him on the show. I want all of those things in five years. I want the, uh, I'm hoping that Sean Amari won't swear quite as much as he does. Did you hear my RF? My, my goal. <laughs> we got a swear jar here and uh, fill it up. That's why I'm piling for bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I really would like to. I would like to expand, and I just want to make sure that we have the best you know, technology that we need to have. We, we want to have an area where we can tape, where we can work on character development, a studio where we can have kids doing promos and um, watching tape. Well, that's going to be a, a big part of what we do is tape review. Like One of the best things I ever did down at OVW was Jim Cornette, once a week, would wheel out the TV, and we would sit there and we would just watch match after match after match. Old school stuff, new school stuff, attitude era stuff. And he would dissect it, pick it apart. You'd play a couple, 15 seconds, pause. Here's what they did. Here's what could have been done differently. Yada yada yada. Here was a failure. Here was a success. We want to be able to do that. I also want to be able to have uh, this. I want this to be a one-stop shop for everything. everything. Um, you know, the nutrition aspect of things. You know, being able to do uh, meal plans for the guys and. and you know, have their meals prepared for them, and personal trainers on staff, so on and so forth. So we want it all. And that's it. Sounds so awesome. I mean, this has been unbelievable. The two of you guys and the chemistry you have as friends is off the charts. And I think the people who are going to attend and the students that are going to come in are in for a hell of a treat. So let's get to it right now. Let's give the plug. Get all the information out there that the listeners, those aspiring workers that want to get into the business of professional wrestling, where can they get all the information that they can to get in contact with you guys and get their behinds into this school? So if you log on to theacademyprowrestling.com, our Facebook is The Academy Pro Wrestling. If you go to Instagram, our at sign is at The Academy Pro Wrestling. And then our Twitter handle is at the Academy S O P W School of Professional Wrestling. Uh, that's how you can get a hold of us. You can go there right now and you can enlist. And me and Ken have decided that like standard 
pro wrestling tuition price is in the ballpark of two to three thousand dollars, which is fair. I, I think so. If like if you're any good at this and you have a snowball chance of hell of making it, you're going to be a millionaire. But for three thousand dollars is kind of a nothing investment. I, I'm still paying fucking student loans for an education I don't use. Like three thousand dollars is nothing. Uh, like. $3,000 is nothing to potentially become a millionaire. And we said, fuck it. We want kids to come in and say, this is my dream, and we want to fulfill them for that. So we cut it down, like, over 66% or something, like 1000 bucks, just for this first class, obviously. But, like, we said, we have a first class. Let's get them in here. Let's get a first class going. Let's give these kids everything we got. We could succeed. We could fail. Who knows? But if we do succeed and our first class goes on there and gets signed with WWE, gets signed with TNA, goes to Japan, goes to Mexico, goes to Europe, we can be like, okay, yeah, we're worth $3,000. The guy who has a ring in his mom's garage who's never done anything or ever been anywhere, the guy that I trained with, the guy that Ken trained with, and we were successes, charge you $3,000. For us to charge you $3,000, like, I don't want to say it. Like, like you're going to get more bang for your buck. If you sign up today for $1,000, it's a fucking no-brainer. Like, it's, it's the same odds as, like, putting it in, like, a, a fucking lottery ticket or whatever. Like, it's not likely most people are going to make it. But at this price point, you should give it a go. Give it a try. See what happens. But what we do promise and what we are going to do is by anyone that graduates, and we will have a pass-fail program. Some people won't graduate. But those that do, we're going to get you work. We're going to get you booked. Ken knows everybody on the independent scene, in WWE, in Mexico, at TNA. I know everybody on the independent scene, and fucking WWE, and TNA, and Japan, and Europe. Eric Cannon knows everybody on the, like, super, like, hot, popular independent scene, like the Pro Wrestling Gorillas, the Ring of Honor. My little brother is kind of the new school guy. He's in the ball. He's, he knows the way things work and operate today. Molly Holly for females that want to train. She could teach you everything you need to know for WWE to, like, want you and be like, shit, we need a girl that can go. Like, we try to look at everything that somebody would need to be successful, which equates money, and give them that. And if we give them that, they will give us $1,000 to sign up. They might give us $3,000 to sign up. We might see somebody that has money written all over them and say, you know what? Fuck it, I'm going to train you for free. You are a complement of the business. You are what we want pro wrestling to be, and we'll give them a fucking scholarship to train them for free. Like, if you have a good product, you will succeed eventually. That's what we did. We didn't get paid for fucking years, but we had a good product, and eventually we did. And that's what we want to provide to everybody else. We want to provide everybody else intentionally what we got for accident. It's the, it's the ringing endorsement of the year. I mean, my God. I mean, if you don't want to get into this academy, then you got rocks in your head. So we really, uh, from I, I can't even begin to tell you how great this has been, and we really appreciate the time. And I know you said, uh, just to kind of dial it back to what you said about, uh, you know, you, get, you don't remember those couple of times with uh, Hulk Hogan, but I'll tell you something. John and I were in attendance the night Hogan came out in MSG, and the roof almost blew off the building. So you've definitely put made an indelible mark in the uh, the annals of pro wrestling. And, Mr. Anderson, you as well, we really appreciate the time. We hope nothing but the best for this academy. And, of course, if there's anything the two-man power trip can do in our power, we would be more than willing to help you guys. So uh, 
All the best. And Have thank a thousand dollars you want to first huh. class? Oh, dude, I'm too old. Uh, 34, come on, no way. <laughs> Ken's old as fuck. You guys be fine. Yeah. Hey, you know what's funny is I don't remember that night at all. Somebody actually, like, I just got Facebook like five minutes ago because I'm on the cutting edge of technology. And uh, some fucking guy messaged me on there and he said, I was, I was in the garden the night that Hulk came back. And he said, that was like, it's kind of weird, like, little shit that's like another day at the office. The guy at Best Buy does not remember what he did on Monday, September fucking 20th, 2009, or whatever the fuck it was. Like, he doesn't know what he did that day at work. I don't either. Probably Ken doesn't either. A lot of guys don't. I know it happened because I can see it on YouTube or the network or whatever. But one thing I do remember about that night is I came back and I was like, what the fuck is this shit in my hair? And I'm like pulling, and I used to have hair then, and I was like pulling like black, like, not black, like grayish brown, like, insulation on my head. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And then Pat came up to me and goes, it's dust. And I was like, where the fuck did it come from? He goes, it's the fucking ceiling. Where do you think it came from? I was like, why did dust come from the ceiling? He goes, because the whole comes down in the garden and dust comes up to the ceiling. I was like, what? <laughs> and that's what two would do together. That this motherfucker got the people so hot that the building was rumbling and legit dust from the garden was falling out of the rafters. And that was the bullshit that was in my hair that night. And it was, like, really cool, but really gross at the same time. So I didn't know if I should enjoy it or take a shower. But, like, I was, like, but the, the thing that I remember about it that was so hilarious was, like, we do a lot of fucked up shit as, like, run-of-the-day mill. Like, I, I told Tana a story the other day that my friend was throwing, you know those fucking olive uh, skewers? Like, they look like swords. And they put olives through it as a martini, like a restaurant or a bar or whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, oh, yeah. Those fucking yeah. store gimmicks. My friend thought she was being really funny. There was a restaurant where the bathroom was upstairs, and she was fucking throwing these fucking swords down from the upstairs down to me at the table. Oh, my God, how funny. And I was like, oh, you know what would be really funny? Is let me jab one of these motherfuckers in my head. So I picked one up off the floor while she was pissing, and I stabbed it in my head. And then she came back, and she looked at me just crazy, like, big eyes. Like, oh, my God, one of those things on your head. Like, oh, I'm just kidding, whatever. I pulled the sword out. And I didn't realize how deep I put it in my head. And then blood. This is like a, like a four or five star restaurant. It's like a fancy place. I pulled the sword out and I fucking gigged myself. And like blood is pouring down my face while we're sitting at the restaurant. And everybody is looking at me like, like, oh my God, call 911. This guy is fucking bleeding. He's going to die. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I remember thinking like, man, like, yeah, no biggie. Like if a guy came back covered in blood in the locker room. We're like, oh, hey, cool, man. Do you want some crazy glue? Like, what's up? Do you, do you want to call the United Hospital? Like, it's a long line. Like, we'll just go to the hotel. We can, we can take it later. <laughs> That's how we think. And I remember thinking, like, there's nothing that could fucking blow me away. There's nothing anyone could ever say that would startle me. But that was the one thing that how nonchalant Pat Patterson was about dust falling from the fucking rafters in your hair. I remember thinking, That's pretty cool. That's a new one for me. Uh, it was pretty good. There was a guy throwing water on his face uh, in the bathroom right after it. I mean, it, it was an impactful moment, I will say that. But uh, we definitely we thank you guys so much. This has been uh, a ton of fun, and this is where uh, this is where I will cut the interview. And I'm dead serious, so we can't help you. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.